0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Professor and Capital Defense Attorney Sean O'Brien. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, I...
0: Don't know how closely you followed it, but um, you know, we've been following, uh, of course, the execution of Taylor uh, from yesterday. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that one?
1: You know, it is hard to swallow the state being so anxious to kill somebody that they won't look into new evidence that he was hundreds of miles away when the homicide happened. Um, and to do that without a hearing, I mean, it'd be one thing if they granted a hearing, heard the evidence and said, "Oh, we don't believe it, um, you're guilty," and then went forward with the execution. Um, some people still have a you know a problem with that, but um, you know, but that's not what happened. They essentially said, "Screw you, we don't care." Um, and uh, you know, I add it to my list of questions. Uh, that come under the umbrella of do Black Lives Matter? I mean, uh, we have a governor who's a small town sheriff and we have a Supreme Court that is uh, very conservative um, and they're more interested in, um, you know, carrying out death sentences than they are in making sure that we have the right guy even. That's scary, you know, difficult.
0: Well, and... I always hear, you know, it's in no one's interest to punish or execute the innocent, and yet we see these cases happen quite a bit, and we're tracking one potentially in Oklahoma as well, the Glossop case.
1: Right, right. In fact, my daughter is one of the investigators in Richard Glossop's case, Um, and I've done a deep dive into that one, and that guy is innocent, Um, and, uh, you know, in the uh, the real killer is the guy they use as a witness against Glossop um, and uh, Justin, i blanking on his last name now, um, uh, but um, <clears throat> uh, Sneed, Justin Sneed uh, is his name. Um, and uh, in fact, Justin's daughter wrote a letter um, that she subsequently repudiated, but basically my dad uh, told me he did this, but... Um, he's afraid that if he admits the truth that he'll be executed, um, and so uh, that's where that stands, um, and uh, Sister Helen Prejean is working on the case too. I don't, you're probably, you probably know her, um, and uh, uh, his case, he would be dead right now. Uh, except that, and I, this goes back a little ways, 2017, he was scheduled to be executed after the. US Supreme Court decided Glossop V. Gross, in which they rejected a claim dealing only with the um, uh, whether or not lethal injection is cruel and unusual punishment. He was actually about to be injected when a doctor who was present noticed they brought potassium acetate instead of potassium chloride. And so they stopped the execution and they had a big investigation into why that happened. Um, and so now, you know, he's kind of back uh, in danger. Um, but I, I told Sister Helen afterward that when, when, not if, but when she is nominated for sainthood, one of her miracles is gonna be turning potassium chloride into potassium acetate, <laughs> so. Yeah, it was uh that's a that's a scary uh case to look at. Um uh there is a documentary you can see online about the case, and you can see my daughter Quinn in it. It's called Killing Richard Glossop. Um, and uh, uh it is uh, it is stunning what how close they're willing to come. I mean, you've even got half the Oklahoma legislature saying, Don't kill this guy, he sure looks innocent to us. So, yeah,
0: that's probably the most incredible part. I was on uh the press conference call uh a few months ago when when the republicans from uh from the legislature basically said, "Hey, this guy's innocent. We think this guy is innocent, and even that's not enough,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, that is the problem with doing innocence work Um, and in a death penalty context is that you think, oh, here's a case I should win Um, hands down very easily. But you always underestimate your burden of proof. Um, uh, You have to exclude even frivolous hypotheses of guilt in order to win. Um, And so they'll make up stuff. Uh, that's just bizarre, what uh, Barry Sheck calls it, the unindicted co-ejaculator rule, (laughs) you know, that uh, they'll make up something, you know, and uh, they did that to Earl Washington in Virginia, where they were about to execute him, Um, and before she died, the victim described her attacker as a white man well over six feet tall um, and, uh, you know, uh, Earl Washington is a five and a half foot tall black guy who is intellectually disabled, and they got him to confess. And then, when DNA proved that it was not his semen left in the victim's body, um, the uh, uh, Virginia Court of Appeals said, well, that doesn't mean he didn't have an accomplice. <laughs> you know? When there's never a stick of evidence about an accomplice, you know, it's just it, this is very, very demanding and difficult work
0: yeah I was just reading uh about a case uh from a number of years ago now down in Louisiana where uh the guy was compelled to falsely confess to a murder um he claimed it was like a fourteen year old girl that uh they had had sex before and then um you know the autopsy showed that she hadn't had sex and uh and they came up with this uh, idea that uh the reason that they didn't find semen in the girl was maggots ate the semen before they could i mean it's just ludicrous and yet they kept the guy in prison for 20 years
1: you have to be sick to make this stuff up i mean oh my god Uh, you know i mean i've seen so many of those uh things Uh, i mean it's been it's what i've been doing for the last 42 years and uh um, yeah, we could just go case after case after case, you know, of what uh, what happens. Uh,
0: so tell us about your work and how you got um, into capital punishment work.
1: You know, I actually started out my legal career as a uh, I wanted to do tax and real estate work. And I did that for about a year and I didn't like it. I was just moving piles of money from point A to point B, or sometimes he's trying to keep a pile of money in my client's pocket, you know, but um, did not find it satisfying. And then uh, one day a friend invited me to apply to the public defender's office and I went there and they interviewed me and it was like coming home, you know, I realized these are my people. You know, and and so I've been doing that kind of work ever since. Um, And if you're, uh, and and I found I had a real passion for poverty law. And if your passion is poverty law, that is a straight line to death row, uh, because uh, you know you see all of the issues. Uh, Every case has, uh, and you look into a client's life history, um, the issues you find in every case: poverty, racism mental illness and innocence you know I could put every case in one of those categories and say this guy is on death row for these reasons you know because somebody who didn't have those factors working for them uh, wouldn't you know wouldn't end up in this situation they'd probably get cut a deal so they could snitch on some poor black guy <laughs> you know <laughs> that's just the way uh, the way the system works it's like Brian Stevenson says, it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent in the criminal justice system
0: and and so you've been um the director of various defense clinics at the u m k c School of Law for a long time
1: a long time um,
0: yeah <laughs> um and, and so what does your work look like there?
1: Well, it's it's changing. And of course, you can tell I'm aging a little bit and I'm not aging out. Um, But one thing that COVID did was it made me realize I like my home. I like my house. (laughs) So, you know, when I started teaching at UMKC, I had clients on death row in seven states Um, and I've been working, you know, to cut that back. And now I don't have clients on death row anywhere, Um, but I'm still working on cases and their cases closer to home. Um, And so I am, I am the clinics I've done, um, I started a death penalty clinic in 1989 at UMKC, and I've done uh, clinical work with uh, clinics at other schools. Like I, I had a couple of Wyoming cases in the early 2000s, and so I worked with the clinic up at UW, University of Wyoming. Big Josh Allen fans up there. So, um, and uh, and I've done some clinics with Westminster University who used to send students over uh, to um, uh, Missouri to work on uh, death penalty cases with us. And so I stay in touch with them um, over the years. But uh, what we do is we have students uh, review cases, um, help us dig through massive transcripts um, and uh, absorb what's there Um, And we debrief. Um, A couple weekends ago, we sent uh, students out to talk to jurors in a case. I mean that's something we love to do with with students because jurors don't like to talk to lawyers, but they love to talk to students. And so we send the students out, and they get amazing stuff. We've actually removed some people from death row and freed them from prison because of things that bailiffs do when they knock on the door and they hand information into the jury to get them (laughs) to break a deadlock. You know, Uh, it's kind of like 12 angry men, except it's the court personnel doing the mischief. Uh, And so you never know whether that happened or not. Um, I'm working on a case now, uh, two cases now, where students have found significant facts just by combing through the record um, so uh, we just ordered a transcript of a trial of a co-defendant who was uh, retried and then released, um, and nobody uh, transcribed this trial. Uh, it was a retrial after you know many years, um, and of course, there's not going to be an appeal when you get time served. He just walked out of the courtroom. Uh, so we ordered the transcript. Um, And my law student, Danielle Gatapia, is her name, um, looked at the main eyewitness from our client's case, and it's a prison stabbing. He said, I saw Rodney Carr stab this prison guard. In Robert Driscoll's last trial, the same guard testified, I saw Robert Driscoll stab the prison guard. And then, uh, and then he's cross-exam, say, wait a minute. In 1983, you said it was Rodney Carr who stabbed the prison guard. And he said, well, I was mistaken. I must have misunderstood the question. <laughs> so, so that testimony is going to bring Rodney Carr home, I think. Um, and so students, uh, you know, they have value. You know, they help us dig through massive documents. Uh, they help us write things. I was in a Wyoming case um, the very last case that I wrapped up um, and we had students looking at uh, the cost of the death penalty and preparing a pretty extensive report uh, for the Wyoming governor in support of the clemency application and the governor ended up not nibbling on it, but we won the case for other, you know, in other ways for other reasons, uh, but it was a pretty good uh, detailed um, outline of how much the death penalty costs, why it costs so much, um, and then reporting the results of various studies in different uh, states. Um, and, and I think it helped for the, um, you know, now, you know, that report has made its way to the Wyoming legislature, and hopefully they'll look at it. Um, there, there is a real chance of repeal in uh, Wyoming. We're hoping for Right now, they have nobody on death row. And there's nobody facing the death penalty at trial. So this is a good time for them to think about the fact that they are half a billion dollars and 20 years away from one execution. Do they really want to invest that kind of money in that? You know?
0: Very interesting. So how has you know the field of the death penalty changed over your career?
1: You know, when the death penalty first came back um, in the early 1980s, um, nobody really um, thought about Furman versus Georgia um, and what it meant to how we should be doing these cases. I mean, people were just beginning to do that. Um, So, Furman versus Georgia in 1972 declared every death penalty statute unconstitutional because there were no guidelines, there were no guardrails, um, and uh, getting the court set, getting uh, sentenced to death in America is like getting struck by lightning. It's just cruel and unusual because it's arbitrary, it's capricious, and there's no way to predict who gets it and who doesn't, except by poverty, race, um, and uh, you know, quality of your lawyer. Um, so things that shouldn't have anything to do with the outcome are driving the outcome, right? <laughs> So uh, in the early days, there were so many unanswered questions about the death penalty, and we had a much different Supreme Court than we have now, or we had you know, in the 1980s and 90s, it became gradually more conservative. Um, uh, we were winning cases in the Supreme Court on legal issues. Um, and, uh, and that slowed down and then stopped altogether. The Rink was Court, um, the, and the Burger Court started putting restrictions on habeas corpus that had never been there before, and so it became harder and harder and harder. So the way it's changed is that the court's restriction of the legal, um, you know, the possibility of a legal success drove us deeper and deeper and deeper into the facts of our cases, um, and so now uh, defending a death penalty case is more than ever. About investigation, about competent investigation, and a, a thorough investigation of the client's life history, and finding those mitigating factors that will move juries. Um, and so we see it. When I started doing death you know post-conviction work in the late 1980s, Missouri was putting 20 people a year on death row. Um, and now we're at a state where, where the, the last death sentence was five years ago. And before that, it was three years before that. Missouri has this funky statute that lets judges impose the death penalty if juries can't do it. Uh, the last four death sentences in Missouri are judge-imposed death sentences where juries couldn't. And so the last jury-imposed death sentence in Missouri was 2006. Um, and so we are getting better at the trial level. Um, we spent a lot of, uh, of effort on training, uh, developing standards of how you should defend a client. And it's, uh, it, it's paying off. You see it everywhere. Um, the, the decline in new death sentences can be explained by a societal rejection of the death penalty. But I think more uh, a more likely explanation is that juries know more today in a death penalty case than they used to 30 or 40 years ago. And so that's really been um, the change for me. I mean, my first, uh, Missouri um, assigns a prison number to capital prisoners in the order in which they arrived on death row. And my very first client was uh, uh, Patrick Trimble, and he was CP number three. Um, so I've been at it for a long time, <laughs> just about for the duration, you know. Uh, so yeah, it has changed, uh, although the basic uh, the basic formula hasn't. Um, uh, if you do an investigation that lets the jury see your client's humanity, um, they can't kill him. Um, it's just that simple. You show. The jury that this is a person who loves other people and is loved by other people, um, they can't impose the death penalty. Um, you show them that um, uh, in a lot of ways they could look at this person and say, "Oh, he's like me, or he or she is like my son or my daughter, or you know we have this in common." Unless, unless you can do that, you know. Uh, you run the risk of a death sentence, but once you get to the point where they see your client as a human being and come to understand your client, um, uh, it is uh, you know the typical jury cannot unanimously kill in that situation.
0: It seems like you know you're you're explaining the history in, in Missouri, and we're we're kind of watching the state attorney general and the legislature push through some of these death sentences, it seems like they're moving in a different direction than the rest of the system. Am I wrong on that?
1: You're, you're not wrong about that. Missouri has always been a state that's very gre- aggressive about the death penalty, um, and that has largely come from the Attorney General. In Missouri, uh, and it and that is even true when our attorneys general are Democrats. Uh, it is not a Democrat Republican thing. It is, um, you know, the thing about the death penalty is that in politics, it is a surrogate for race. Um, you can say. We're going to kill these guys. I'm going to, you know, we're going for justice, you know, and all that. And you can go tough on crime. I'm, you know, but, uh, you know, the, and there are people in the middle who aren't offended by that. Uh, But there are a lot of people who go, yeah, string him up, hang him from a tree, you know. Missouri executes because Missouri lynched. If you want to see a correlation historically with states that execute and states do not, um, look at how common, how frequent people were lynched in that state, and you'll see how well that state embraces or rejects the death penalty. Um, and so, California has the biggest death row in America, right? And they're way down at the bottom in terms of <laughs> executions, you know, because they weren't, a sla- you know, they came into the Union later. They're not a slave state, um, and lynching was not a huge thing. In California, not that it never happened, but it was rare. In the South, in the early 20th century, there was a lynching once every four days. Um, And Missouri was one of those states that actively lynched. We have well over 100 documented lynchings in between 1920 and 1930. Um, And so that translates to, and and I think in particular, a rural population that uh, embraces the death penalty really out of a sense of ethnic cleansing. I mean, it's horrible. Uh, it's horrible, but if you want, a lot of you my opinion, uh, but I, if you really dug into it, you would see that um, uh, Missouri is not an enlightened place. And so that explains why we're so high, you know, uh, in as a matter of fact, on a per capita basis, we out-execute Texas. Wow.
0: Um, so shifting gears a little bit. Um, We were looking at your paper, put down the phone, um, and and kind of explain to us what you guys were looking at and and what you found there.
1: Yeah, we, uh, you know, as I said, uh, our uh, defense of of death penalty cases and criminal cases generally, because the courts are closing down in terms of legal issues, um, the action now is with jurors and telling your story supported by evidence and getting the evidence in front of juries. And in a lot of ways, judges are just like jurors. Um, Even uh, the most conservative judge will rule in your favor if they believe it is the right thing to do so strongly that it overcomes all of their other impulses toward law and order and criminal justice. Um, And so the investigation of the case has become the most important aspect of the case. Um, And of course, uh, investigation, part of it is gathering documents. That's a necessary thing. But the other part is witness interviews. Um, and, uh, you know, we do a lot of training around the country. Uh, my daughter, who I mentioned, uh, Quinn O'Brien, is a private investigator, and um, we investigate cases together. I've, uh, you know, worked with her in a number of cases, um, and, and we do trainings together. And, and I've done trainings in public defender offices or, or in, uh, you know, bar uh, uh, functions where People kind of push back or bristle on the notion that witness interviews ought to be face-to-face. You get out in the field and you talk to people. Um, And uh, because if you're in an office that is just overwhelmed with cases, you cut corners. Um, And the first corner that often gets cut in the investigation is they rely on the telephone. Oh, what's this witness have to say? Oh, just call them up, we'll see. Um, And that is just the most ineffective way to do it. Um, So the very last case that we did, and I cite to the judge's opinion quite a bit in this article, um, was uh, uh, Dale Eaton, Eaton versus Wilson in the state of Wyoming. The trial lawyer, who is a public defender, Uh, To save money um, required his investigator to call ahead for every interview that she did and do a pre-interview. And if the pre-interview didn't indicate that it would be a good interview, don't go. And so she screened out the best witnesses by relying so heavily on the telephone Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, that's always been substandard work. Um, but we felt like we needed something. We needed to write something that would educate lawyers. You know, when we write an article like this, um, we have several objectives in mind. Number one, we want to educate teams, uh, that this is not the way to do it. Um, number two. We want to give teams the ammunition to cite to the court or to their funding authority that, look, we need more time and resources to investigate because the telephone isn't going to cut it. Um, and number three, uh, you know, in post-conviction, we want post-conviction lawyers to be going out in the field and talking to people. Um, and so one of the first things I do when I get into a new post-conviction case is I make two columns of witnesses. Uh, three actually. Witnesses who were interviewed by the trial lawyer uh, in person, witnesses who were interviewed only by telephone, and then witnesses who were never interviewed at all. And uh, and the question is, what are these, you know, we always find the really good stuff from the witnesses who were just interviewed over the phone uh, or witnesses who were never interviewed at all. Um, And so really, as part of elevating the standard of practice um, and to protect against wrongful convictions um, before they happen um, and wrongful sentences of death before they happen, um, because, um, you know, habeas corpus is getting shut down, that the safety valves um, are less and less reliable. Um, So we have to do something. We have to do something.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's a good point, right? There there really is no guardrail, there's no fail-safe anymore.
1: No safety net. Um, and you know, the last term when the Supreme Court decided Shin versus Ramirez, that um, said basically if your post-conviction lawyer commits malpractice and and omits a claim, you might be able to raise that claim but because of this anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act, uh, that you, know, you can't present evidence in support of that claim. So you can make your argument, but you can't prove it in federal court. And so it really shuts down habeas corpus uh, for a lot of prisoners. Um, right now, there's only one narrow set of legal claims where you can get relief in federal habeas corpus. And that is a claim that was rejected by the state court on procedural grounds. And you can show the procedural grounds are legally invalid so that the federal court then can make its own ruling and you know create its own record. But you just about have to have it, but it can't be the lawyer's fault. It can't be because of legal malpractice. <laughs> So, you know, if if you're uh, in a state, I hesitate to say this if it's going to be broadcast over there, but here's the reality: if a state underfunds public defenders at the trial level, it can block the defendant from getting federal habeas corpus relief by also underfunding appellate lawyers and post conviction lawyers in state court, because then there'll be all of these procedural technicalities injected into the case and the federal court can't even look at it because you didn't do the, you didn't do it right the first time. So
0: And this is a real problem because we have learned a lot in the last 20 to 30 years in terms of you know, uh, innocence and wrongful convictions and, and, and the whole works. And yet the courts are kind of moving in the complete opposite direction of what we've learned.
1: You make a really good point. Science is saying we need to be going the other way from where courts are taking us. Um, and it's even worse than what, it, what you think or what you see on the surface, because when you look at DNA and its ability to prove innocence, um, in the vast majority of cases, they are cases that involve a sexual assault. You know, Most DNA exonerations are for rape. Because the perpetrator leaves unambiguous genetic material behind. Um, And when DNA solves a homicide, it's because it's a homicide that occurred during a rape. Um, And the same with robberies and assaults. You know, if there's a sexual assault that goes with it, uh, then DNA can help us. That's a narrow sliver of the 2.3 million people sitting in prison. Um, and so, but what it, what uh, we have done and, and Barry Sheck's office in New York, the New York Innocence Project uh, on their website has a lot of great data about, you know, taking this pool of exonerations. Um, and now there are Almost 400 DNA exonerations in America. And then there's the exoneration registry um, at uh, Northwestern and University of Michigan um, that, uh, that lists all exonerations um, since the mid-1980s. Um, and there's over 2,000 of them now um, that they've been able to document. Um, and so if you you know, so a small sliver of those exonerations are DNA exonerations. Uh, But we can take that database and look backward and see what causes wrongful convictions, so we know that underfunding indigent defense is a big part of it. We know that uh, prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, Typically in the form of Brady violations, you know, hiding evidence that could be uh, exculpatory to the defendant. Uh, That's a a big part of it. That's uh, about a third of the cases. We know that eyewitness testimony is untrustworthy. We know that there are all kinds of categories of what we call junk science that you know flawed forensics uh, that contribute to wrongful convictions Um, and uh, you know the use of jailhouse informants I mean so we know what the risk factors are that cause wrongful convictions Um, so we can use this to go back and and that's what I do in my work with students when I do innocence cases um, uh, I uh, uh, I leave the DNA stuff to Innocence Projects. That's the low-hanging fruit. But we do the old-fashioned shoe leather, knocking on doors. And so so that article that helps us, I mean, I actually use it in my class when I teach. I, I actually teach a class in investigation. Um, and so I have another one that we wrote on uh, my, and my. I, I co-authored this one with my daughter Quinn as well. Um, and it is about um, uh, internet investigation what you can find over the internet through publicly available sources. We don't want anybody to hack or invade privacy, but just whatever we can find about somebody that's public. Um, and uh, Quinn's idea for the uh, for the title of the article, it was hers. It's, uh, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> so we can, <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing what you can find. When Quinn and I do our training about internet you see all these scared looks in the crowd. And then she has a seminar afterward privately where she says, you meet me in the hotel bar and you buy me a cocktail, I'll bring your laptop, I'll lock down your social medias. (laughs) But we've actually cracked cases on the internet. Uh, It's uh, it's amazing what you can find, yeah.
0: Yeah, Um, doesn't surprise me at all. Um, Yeah, just, you know, I I think, I mean, are you encouraged or discouraged at the state of affairs at this point?
1: I am both. You know, I'm discouraged at the courts. um, And I used to say that um, I still believe the system works, but only if you grab it by the lapels and throttle the bejesus out of it. You can make the system work, you know. Uh, and I think an, an essential part of the system is the fourth estate, you know, uh, journalism. Um, that there have been many cases where judicial and executive clemency forums were closed to me. Um, and so, how do you, um, you know, represent a person who's on death row? inappropriately or wrongfully convicted, how do you uh, get relief for that individual? Um, And sometimes it's just exposing the injustice and doing it in time that the court now is afraid not to stay the execution and take a look at the case. I don't think the media influences the outcome, but I think the media influences the decision to look at the case. Um, and so if the governor had been afraid that so many people thought Taylor was innocent, I better look, you know, I better stay the execution and at least pretend to look at it, you know, or the Missouri Supreme Court. we had I had a case very similar to Taylor's, um, Joseph Amrine, um, and we had students from MU who wrote a documentary about the case, produced a documentary that was really quite good. It was called Unreasonable Doubt, the case of Joe Amrine," Um, And it was winning film festival awards all around the Midwest. It was playing at a local theater in Columbia, Missouri, every Wednesday night to sell out crowds for an entire summer. Um, and uh, And then we put a habeas corpus petition in front of the Missouri Supreme Court and they looked at it. By golly. And when they looked at the evidence, they saw, oh my gosh, um, this guy is innocent. And they found by clear and convincing evidence that he was innocent and that that was enough to grant habeas corpus relief. Um, uh, and so, you know, um, uh, I am convinced that people working hard and digging in, investigating, exposing the truth can do this. Um, And I am really encouraged about this next generation uh, that I see coming up. Uh, I have a great amount of faith in young people. You know, it seems like you always hear people saying, oh, the youth today, what's this coming to? You know, I mean, no, the truth is my generation screwed this up. And our kids are going to save us. You know, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Um, You look at election results and uh, when you've got conservative people wanting to raise the minimum age to vote, you know the kids are all right.
0: Well, where I'm most concerned right now is that we know a whole lot more about all these problems in the system. And yet every single wrongful conviction case that I've looked into at any detail has almost been accidental that they get exonerated.
1: Yeah, exoneration comes from outside the system, you know. Um, and, and so I'm a law professor with a bunch of students, you know, but for us coming along, um, there would be, um, you know, in, in you know my work, um uh i, I was I I, don't, I I never kept track of this but the dean asked me how many cases have you guys in our clinic successfully uh, and if you add the exonerations together with the number of people we've removed from death row in different states it comes up to 42 uh, which is that's the douglas adams number right? <laughs> <It's, Yeah. laughs>
0: Some people will know that reference.
1: <laughs> Some people will, and you do. I'm glad. You got it. Um, and uh, although, uh, I'm, you know, this case I'm working, it's going to be 43. Before the, I'm not sad about that. <laughs> right. It's been right there at 42 for a little while. So, um, 42
0: yeah. is better than I would have thought um, uh-huh. and worse than it probably should be.
1: Right, right, right. You know, it, it is so discouraging. Um, and there's nothing more discouraging than I do a lot of consulting on cases, and I've consulted um, with people uh, in cases where innocent clients were executed. And that is, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. I think any execution uh, is difficult for the legal counsel to go through, uh, but innocence. Uh, is especially troubling in that context um and uh, so you know um uh there are reasons to be discouraged but i'm in it up to my neck and so i can't let myself be discouraged and stay discouraged um and uh i've i've been fortunate um i have not had a client executed since 1992 uh but i still tear up when i think about that experience and um, I've been in t- in a prison three times when um, the they were gearing up to do an execution, and a couple of times I got last minute stays of executions, um, and that was as traumatic as actually seeing it. I mean, it's scary because the prison and the prison personnel turn into this inhuman, unfeeling, um, uh, robotic. Um, just like sausage grinder machine, and your client is the only thing in it that even remotely resembles humanity. Um, and uh, it, it, you know they're all very militaristic. Um, everything's in code, um, and uh, and and you see all the little subtle cruelties. You know, in the Missouri death watch chamber, there is a clock that is this big around. Um, And it's a room that is like your typical living room, and there's a screen on one part of it, a metal screen, and the client is on the other side of it directly opposite from that clock, and it's got a second hand that ticks every second. It's so big that the end of the second hand quivers every time it ticks off a second, Um, and that – you can't tell me that isn't torture. You, you You have to watch that clock. For the last, and you go to the death watch cell 30 days before you're executed. Um, and you have to watch that clock every minute. You can't not see or hear that clock. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure that's not the worst, but I mean, I just uh, was so conscious of that. Um, it is, you will never convince me that the death penalty is not cruel and unusual punishment, it's horrific.
0: I just remember the, the scene in Just Mercy um, where where the guy's executed and, you know, this was a guy who wasn't um, innocent, but he just felt like shouldn't have been executed given his life circumstances. And I don't know how you could keep going if you're Brian Stevenson, especially as a young attorney at that point
1: yeah yeah i've done cases with brian he and i you know when i ran the capital punishment resource center in missouri he ran the alabama capital punishment resource center so we were funded by the same federal grant um, and started up our offices at about the same time Um, so we did a lot of collaboration and we talked when they defunded our offices in 1996 when um, you know we were we were the first Plank on Newt Gingrich's contract on America. <laughs> get rid, you know, it, it was uh, uh, an effective death penalty, and the first plan was uh, get rid of capital puni- punishment resource centers. So, um, you know, we talked, and and he had some good advice for me uh, about how to kind of reorganize so that we could continue as a nonprofit, even though we weren't getting federal money. Um, and so yeah, he is an amazing guy um, and I just love him. He's just tremendous and he's been an inspiration to all of us who do this. I mean, you really have to have a community and a grounding in the work because it can make you crazy. I have seen lawyers um, ruin their careers doing this because they just uh, become so emotionally labile um, and they lose judgment and they lash out and you know they're just not in control of their post-trauma symptoms (laughs) and they just um wreck their careers um i've seen that happen uh, to good lawyers and it's not going to happen to brian because he is so well grounded i just love that
0: well we are out of time but i really enjoyed uh listening to to your stories um and your perspective on on this critical issue. So thanks for joining us this week.
1: All right. Well, thank you for having me. I've had a good time getting to know you and talking to you. So anytime we could do this.
0: This has been Every Day in Justice. We've been talking with Sean O'Brien, who is uh, the director of various defense clinics at UMKC School of Law. This is Your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.